Do we have a class tonight? Get ready for the class of all classes. Now, all the classes are the class of all classes, but this one, this one is really the class of all classes. This is not just a Torah studies class. This is a Torah studies Passover edition Torah studies class, which is next level stuff. As always, I'm going to mute everybody just to keep a nice, clean background. Nice, clean background so that everyone can hear without distraction. If you do want to jump in, just unmute. You should be able to do that. I need to mention as we begin that this class has been graciously sponsored by Adina Malka in honor of the yard site of her father, her dear and beloved father, Paul Gorman, the son of Harry Gorman. So um, Adina Malka's dad, so Paul's yard site is on the first night of Passover. And it's, this is going to be 19 years since his passing. So certainly a, a very special, a very special um, and significant uh, um, opportunity to study Torah in the, in the honor and the merit of Adina Malka's dad. We know this. We know there are many things that bring um, nachas, that bring um, light to our, to our uh, dearly beloved, to those whom we've loved and lost. Um, certainly giving tzedakah, doing a mitzvah. Is, is, is important. Torah study is one of, the, one of the greatest things that we can do in honor of our loved ones. You know, famously, Mishnah is the same letters as Neshama, Mishnah being the quintessential work of Jewish thought. And although the Mishnah is a specific body of, of, of Torah study, nonetheless, the notion is that to, the, the general idea is that Torah study is um, intrinsically connected with souls. And so as we all study tonight, and including Adina Malka, may this collective study Indeed, bring merit to your father. And uh, 19 years um, since his passing, may, may, may we all very soon, may you very soon be reunited with your father, with the coming of Mashiach and the resurrection of, of, of the dead. And may we all be reunited with all of our loved ones in that ultimate time. And let us say, Amen. So in that spirit, let us begin studying Torah. One more mention that I um, want to wish a refuah shlema, a, a, a good health and, a, and, and, and only blessings of health to Leah Bas Chaya Rus and to, um, and to give me a second here, and to... Give me one second here. Deborah. Zev. Yeah. Okay. I found it. Zev Baruch Ben Rachel. Zev Baruch Ben Rachel and um and uh and Leah Bas Chairus should have a Rufu Shlema and only only good good health and good news. Okay, let's jump into our class. Um, very special class, very special um associations with tonight's class, as just mentioned. So tonight we focus not on the regularly scheduled Torah portion, but on the upcoming holiday of Passover. And, pa and by the way, in case you're wondering, yes, I did get a haircut. It's not just a filter, right? Just, just in case you were wondering, because who knows, Zoom, you could do anything, but no, this is a real haircut. Okay, so just in case you were wondering. Pesach, Passover is, is associated with many themes, but I would say by, by far, 
the most um, well-known theme of Passover is, this is your cue to unmute yourself. What is the most famous theme of Passover? Jump in. Freedom. Freedom. Good. Freedom. I was waiting for some jokes like barsht and whatever, but yeah, freedom. Freedom is the, freedom is associated with, um, with it's, Passover. Uh, Passover is a festival of freedom. It's uh, merging with Christian Brothers Brandy. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And we yeah. have a new product called Manashagets. Well, there, yeah, that's my old joke. Sorry, I had yeah, to... no, that's uh, that's an oldie, that's an oldie, but a goodie, oldie but moldy. <laughs> yeah, well, depends how old it is. So, so Pesach certainly is associated with the theme of with the theme of freedom. But so tonight we're going to take a deeper look at freedom, a deeper look at birth, a deeper look at birthdays, a deeper look at Egypt and Pharaoh and idolatry, and a deeper look at really. The, all the major themes of Passover, this is uh, a look from the inside out. And I need to mention that tonight is, today is a very special day. In addition to everything that we mentioned before, today is the birthday of the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory. Today is the 119th birthday of the Rebbe entering the 120th year. Rebbe was born in 1902, and we know on the birthday, of course, the art site as well, on the birthday of a tzaddik, it's a very special day, even after the tzaddik has departed from this world, the birthday represents the day in which that soul came into this world, the soul that made such a prof- had such a profound effect on the world, and all of us are here tonight, even if you don't think so, but I'll tell you, I wouldn't be here if not for the Rebbe, so I don't know who else will be leading this Zoom right now on my account, but that probably wouldn't be happening, so... I, I, the fact that we're all here studying Torah is, uh, is due to the Rebbe's influence, and the Rebbe was born on this day, and so I think it's, uh, it behooves us to, um, to acknowledge that and to think about what areas that we can deepen our connection to Yiddishkeit, deepen our spiritual connection, and we'll speak somewhat about birthdays and births tonight as well. So let's talk about the first theme, the theme of freedom. I looked up some definitions of freedom, and here's what I found. I want to share with you three definitions of freedom that I discovered when looking it up, okay? This is from classic dictionary definitions. Number one, three definitions of freedom. The absence of subjection to foreign domination or despotic government, right? So according to this definition of freedom, freedom is the absence of subjugation to foreign domination or despotic government. Okay, so we're not being imprisoned. We're not being um, dominated by other powers, etc. Okay, number two, definition number two is the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. So what is freedom? It's not being imprisoned or enslaved. Good. Number three, third definition is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint, meaning one is free to act without without anyone else forcing them to act in, in, a, in a different way, in a contrary way. And what I find interesting about all three definitions, primarily the first two, but the third also, is that these are all negative definitions. And what I mean by negative definitions, it's telling us what freedom is not, but not telling us what freedom is. You're telling me that freedom is not 
the state of being imprisoned or enslaved. Okay, so that's what it's not. You know what also freedom is not? Freedom is not an apple. Freedom is not a circle. Freedom is not a, a spaceship. I mean, you're telling me things that it's not. I could list many things, right? Yeah. How is that even a definition, right? Heads are going to roll tonight in Merriam-Webster dictionary when they realize that this whole thing is a fraud. You're telling me that the definition of a word is the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved? You're telling me what it's not, right? It's also not a kid's scooter. It's not so many different things, but what is it? What is freedom? So you tell me it's not being enslaved by a foreign entity, government, despotic government. It's not being enslaved. It's not being forced. It's not being told what to do. All right. I have a lot of negative definitions. You're telling me what it's not, right? You're kind of excluding certain things, but no, what is it? So tonight we explore the positive definition of freedom. And I don't mean, it's important, I don't mean positive or negative as, you know, exciting or depressing. That's not what I mean by positive or negative. I mean, are you giving me a definition or are you telling me simply what it's not? There's, there's yediyas or yediat chiyuvi and yediat shalili. There's, no, there's identifying what a thing is and then there's eliminating what a thing is not. So famously, the philosophers, Jewish philosophers, write about, about God, write regarding God that we can't have a direct understanding, a direct firsthand knowledge, if you will, of God. The best we can do is eliminate what God is not. God is not an image. God is not a form. God is not a, a physical body, etc. We can eliminate my Rambam writes this, my Manis writes this. You can eliminate what God is not, but to say what God is would already constitute a bit of an overreach, human overreach, and a bit of a um, a bit of a limitation as well. That's one example of where we specifically seek to speak to what a thing is not as opposed to what a thing is. And so what my point is is that that's true for God, but when it comes to freedom, we should at least have a direct definition, a positive definition of what it is and not just what it's not. So that's our opening question. Question number one is, so what is freedom? We know what it's not, but what is freedom? Question number two. In scripture, Jewish scripture, it refers to the experience of the Exodus as the birth of the Jewish people. The birth of Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, is born Leidat Am Yisrael, the birthday, speaking of birthdays, right? The birthday of the Jewish nation happened at the Exodus. Now, where do we see that in scripture? You're taking my word for it, but where do we see it in scripture? So I'm going to bring down, not bring down, I will bring up on the screen a text from Ezekiel, from Yechesko. All right, I'm going to share my screen with you, and let's jump into this together. All right, let's kick this off. Adina Malka, um, in, in honor of the very special uh, um, uh, dedication of tonight's class, please go ahead and read text number one. Thank you. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, 
Your navel was not cut, neither were you washed with water for cleansing, nor were you salted nor swaddled at all. No, I pitied you enough to do for you any of those, to have mercy on you, and you were cast on the open field in the loathsomeness of your body on the day you were born. And I passed by you and saw you downtrodden with your blood. And I said to you, with your blood, live. And I said to you, with your blood, live. All right, hold on. It keeps on going. Continue, please. Myriads, like the plants of the fields, I have made you, and you have increased and grown, and you have come with perfect beauty, breasts fashioned, and your hair grown, but you were naked and bare. And I passed by you and saw you, and behold, your time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over you, and I covered your nakedness, and I swore to you and came into a covenant with you, says the Lord and you were mine. And I washed you with water, and I rinsed your blood off you, and I anointed you with oil. And I clothed you with embroidered garments, and I shod you with the skin of the badger, and I girded you with fine linen, and I covered you with silk. Thank you. Thank you. Very, um, very poetic, very, some, I, I, I don't know, very, but somewhat enigmatic text. Mm -hmm. You want to see the source? It's Ezekiel or Yechezkel 16, verses 4 through 10, chapter 16 of Ezekiel. Now, the commentaries understand this to be referring to God and the Jewish people. Um, and let's take a look at what Rashi says. Uh, you may know this, that Rashi is not just the commentary on the five books of Moses. Rashi wrote a commentary on lots of scripture, um, including the book of Ezekiel. Take a look at what Rashi says. Let's jump in. Ray, please read text number two. Hold on. Don't forget to unmute. You got it. Is that better? Yeah, we got it. Yeah. On the day you were born, when I chose you in Egypt, you were entirely bare. Because the exodus is compared to birth, the verses relate the various stages of caring for a newborn. Thank you. So Rashi clarifies that all these verses in what Adina Malka just read, that really interesting and poetic and evocative imagery of, of a baby and, and being neglected until someone comes down and cleans off the baby from the blood, right? So that, that evocative scene, that, uh, that strange and, and, and bizarre and heartbreaking, but, but uplifting at the end scene, Rashi says, you know what that is? That's the Jewish people in Egypt. And that's the Exodus, right? There you have the Jewish people wallowing in slavery, right? The birth of a people, people are, are about to be born or just born, but no one cares and no one knows and no one wants to know and there's no one there to help out. And now you have a baby. And I know I just um, stopped sharing the screen, but I have my copy, my, my book open in front of me. So I'm just going to read you some, some lines from that. You were not washed with water. You were not, you were not cleansed with water. You were not salted or swaddled. I, I don't know what the salting is. Do we know what this, anybody know what salting a baby is? No? More were you salted? I don't know what that is. Maybe there's some sort of saline thing that they used to do back in the day to clean oh. something. Either way, it probably was some sort of ancient uh, something that you would do with babies. But the point is that nothing happened with the baby, right? The baby was born or the baby was, you know, being born and no one around until 
this savior figure swoops, swoops in or sweeps in and, um, and rescue saves the day and washes you with water. I rinse you, I wash you with water and rinse your blood off you. I anoint you with oil. I gave you clothing and I put on um, skins and whatever, et cetera, fine linen and silk. And that's a reference to the Exodus. At the Exodus or right before the Exodus, we had nothing. We were wallowing in blood. You know what kind of blood? Blood of circumcision and the blood of the Paschal lamb. Remember, they put the blood on the doorposts, but we still weren't free, right? We might have had notions of our own identity, but we weren't free until God carried us out of Egypt. And that becomes the birth of the Jewish people. Leidat Am Yisrael, the birth of the Jewish nation, happens at the time of the Exodus. This is but one example in scripture where we find this imagery, this, uh, this, this kind of analogy for what the Exodus was about. So what is the Exodus about? It's about the birth of the Jewish people as a nation. But here's the question. The question is, and maybe you're thinking this question, are the Jewish people born at the Exodus? That's the birth? Are you kidding me? The Jewish people were a nation or was a nation, depending on the grammar there, right? We were a nation well before the Exodus. Do you remember when Jacob came down with his family to Egypt, right? With Joseph as the viceroy, remember that? How many Jews were there alive at the time of Joseph's descent? How many Jews were there in total? 70. 70, yeah, 70 Jews. So what happens? There are 70 Jews and life is good. And the Torah tells us, and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's all over the scripture and it's all over the, the book of Exodus and the commentaries, the Jews were very, um, the Jews, oh, one second. What are the verses from Ezekiel? The verse from Ezekiel are four through 10, chapter 16, four through 10. Um, the Jewish people were a very strong and numerous nation. They were 70 when Jacob came down, and then they multiplied. In fact, the Torah tells us that the rationale that Pharaoh used for why to have that campaign to destroy, to decimate, to, to kill the Jewish people, to kill the Jewish boys, why? Because they were too numerous. He said to his people, look, the Jewish nation, they're too numerous. They're going to overtake us. They were a large number. In fact, this is repeated elsewhere in Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the final words of Moses to the people before his passing, as he reflects on 40 years prior when they were still in Egypt. Take a look at text number three, and let us ask David, Dr. David, to please read text number three. And you shall call out and say before the Lord your God, and Aramean sought to destroy my forefather, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there with a small number of people, and there he became a great, mighty, and numerous nation. And the Egyptians treated us, treated us cruelly and afflicted us, must have been that coffee, and they imposed hard labor upon us. So we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And God brought us out from Egypt with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, with great awe, with signs and with wonders. And he brought us to this place and he gave us this land, a land flowing with honey and milk. 
So that is from Deuteronomy. It's part of the Bikurim declaration when a farmer, a Jewish farmer in the ancient land of Israel would bring the first fruits to the temple, the first harvest, the first fruits. He would make this declaration, a mini journey uh, through Jewish history, right? In the beginning, we were humbled. In the beginning, things weren't great. And then we became a great nation, or sorry, great, mighty, and numerous nation. But then Pharaoh tried to kill us, and then God saved us, and then he brought us to this land, and... Here are the fruits. That's the end of this. The end of this declaration is where the farmer says, and thank God we have this land and I have my land and here are the fruits. And now I give it as a dedication, the first fruits to the temple, to the Kohen. That's this. We also, by the way, say this. When do we say this? Who knows? These verses, when do we say this? Seder. At the Seder. Absolutely. These are verses that are not only said but expounded upon at the seder most of the magid most of the that that chunk of the seder in which we retell the story is an analysis over these very verses these verses that speak about the slavery and redemption these are analyzed and and insights are drawn from it and um and this provides a bulk of the, a, a major part of the conversation Seder night. But here's our point tonight. Here's my point why we have this here tonight. Because if you look at the, the beginnings of the Jewish people, right? We went down to Egypt with a small, can you guys see my mouse? Let's move it around a little bit. You see that? Yeah, okay. They, we started off as a small number of people. And then he, Jacob, Jacob's family became a great mighty and numerous nation. And then they treated us cruelly and afflicted us because we were so great, mighty and numerous. So the question now is, and this is a question that the commentaries ask, the question is, how can we say, there we go. How can we possibly say that the Exodus marks the birth of the Jewish people when clearly the Jewish people were born well, before the Exodus. Um, you took it. I gave it. That's the question. How can we say that the time of the Exodus is Leidat Am Yisrael, the birth of the people, when the people were alive and well, well before the Exodus? They were great. They were many. They were numerous. What is going on with the birth? The Rebbe also asked this question. And in the Rebbe's Derech Halima, the way the Rebbe learns Torah, it's something really beautiful. I think I spoke last week about how everything is analyzed. But in addition to everything being analyzed, when the Rebbe asks a question on Torah, it's in order to demonstrate that our understanding of the topic is flawed. Because if we go down that path of understanding, you hit this wall where it doesn't make sense anymore. Are you with me on that? Right? You travel down this path and you think, oh yeah, I understand it this way. And then the Rebbe says, okay, here's a roadblock. You can't get around this. And the point is not to stop our progress, but to allow us to realize that there's another way to understand it. And the, and, and the question itself necessitates a different understanding. And so often the question is the answer because the roadblock itself directs us to where the truth of the matter lies. And the same concept is manifest in our conversation right here. The Rebbe says 
that if Ezekiel, if the book of Ezekiel, if the sages refer to the Exodus as the birth of the Jewish people, it must not mean the physical birth of the Jewish people. It must mean a spiritual birth of the Jewish people. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? Because physically, there were many, many, many hundreds of thousands of Jews before the Exodus. The Jewish people became a very numerous nation well before the Exodus, even before the slavery began. That's why the slavery began, at least according to uh, Pharaoh's uh, rationale, because they were so numerous and great and mighty, he said, we have to come up with a solution to the problem, if you will, right? God forbid, but that was in his mind. Which means that the physical Leidat Am Yisrael, the physical birth of the Jewish people, obviously happened centuries prior. So what happens at the Exodus? Not the physical birth of the Jewish people. You have the spiritual birth of the Jewish people. But, but just like physical birth is a radically new stage of reality, it's not just, you know, well, before the fetus was inside and now the child is outside. So a little bit of a difference. Birth is a brand new reality, even though the potential was there before, obviously, right? It's not like coming from nowhere, right? Even though the, the potential and, and the, the child is there before, nonetheless, birth is a, a watershed moment. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a major stage, brand new stage. The same thing is true in the history of the Jewish people. Yes, physically, we were around before the Exodus, but spiritually, this is the birth. And just like birth is a radical paradigm shift, so too, the birth, spiritual birth of the Jewish people at the Exodus was a radical spiritual paradigm shift. We've answered the question without explaining the answer. I don't know if you noticed that. Do you notice that? We answer the question without explaining the answer. Do you see what I'm saying, by the way? The question is, what does it mean that it was the birth of the Jewish people if they were already around? And the answer is, it's the spiritual birth of the Jewish people. And just like birth is a radical new stage, so too, spiritual birth is a radical new stage. We've answered the question, but what does it mean? Practically, what does it mean? As the Rebbe would often do in his talks, he would give you the, the nekuda, nekuda, the point of the answer, and then develop it. So the point of the answer is, it's the birth of the Jewish people because spiritual birth, radically new stage of spiritual reality. What does that mean in, in, in layman's terms? What does that mean in day-to-day in -day conversation? Let's unpack it. As we go through this class, let's get back to our first theme. We have two themes that we're juggling back and forth and now back again. So we have freedom as theme number one. And we ask the question, well, what is the positive definition of freedom? Don't tell me what it isn't, but what is it? Then we shift it over to the notion of birth because Exodus is, is associated. Um, Passover is associated not only with freedom, but also with birth. And we ask questions about what birth. And we said spiritual birth, spiritual um, paradigm shift. Okay. But now back to freedom. We want to define freedom in a positive sense, not just a negative sense, not just what it isn't, but what it is. So to understand this, we need to present the following important idea that, that Moses didn't come to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you're violating our, our rights, our freedoms. You have to let us go because, you know, based on, uh, on this, on just the moral code of, uh, of, of society and humanity, 
You can't enslave other people. That's not exactly what Moses said. You see, um, uh, Passover is not about physical emancipation as much as it is about spiritual emancipation. Let me explain. There's one thing we know about Egypt. Well, we know many things about Egypt, but one of the major things that we find in, uh, about Egypt amongst the commentators and sages is that Egypt was steeped in idolatry. Egypt was all in on Avodah Zarah, idolatry, which reminds me of my Hanukkah, of the Hanukkah play that I was involved in when I was still a, um, a bachelor. Did I ever tell you this story about the Hanukkah play? It must have been the late 90s. And we did the play in South Florida, around South Florida. We also did it in, in, Los, in, in around LA, different years. It was a traveling Hanukkah theater. Myself and a few guys. We had an incredible script. We had costume sets, portable sets. It was very, very cool. We had like cement buckets, like five-gallon five paint buckets full of cement with a, with a pipe inside that was embedded inside with painter poles that were telescoping. Attached to these telescoping painter poles were long blinds that were painted with backdrops. And you can change the backdrop by... Um, you know, like the, the slat blinds, by just turning the, the blinds, it would have two backdrops, one, the Jews hiding in the field or in the caves for the Hanukkah, and the other one, the, uh, the temple, you know, the scene at the temple. My point is not to tell you about the play, although on second thought, it's actually, no, here's the point. So this was around when Monsters, Inc., the movie came out. Who's familiar with Monsters, Inc.? Remember Monsters, Inc., the movie, the kids movie, animated movie? Okay. So do you remember one of the main characters? So they're all monsters. And one of them was like this big eye. Do you remember the big eye guy? I, don't, I forgot his name, but some sort of big eye dude. So we were looking for some sort of like getchka, some sort of like idol that we could have, you know, that, 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 that the Jews were supposed to bow down to that would be kind of tongue in cheek and whatever. So we were in probably Target or Walmart, one of those store, stores looking for something. And we settled on like some sort of stuffed animal thing that would become the idol until I literally saw the eye doll. And I'm like, are you kidding me? There's a monster, Monsters, Inc. doll, like stuffed thing that's literally an eye. This is an eye doll. Are you with me on this? That is the end of my story. But I felt like I should share it with you to kind of bring. Yeah, that's it. So we would bring it out and be like, bat, bat, the, the, the Greek officer would be like to the Jew in the play bow down to the idol the idol just to emphasize the uh, the pun and the parents would laugh and groan and the kids would be like oh that's from the movie whatever either way here's the point egypt is known for idolatry so much so listen to this so much so that in the story of the plagues when moses tells when pharaoh pleads with Moses and says, Moses, please pray for me and stop the plague. Moses tells Pharaoh, I'll pray to God, but give me some time because I need to step out of the city. You know why? Because the city was filled with idols. You can't daven in a place. You can't pray in a place that's filled with idolatry. So he had to literally leave the city limits 
pray and come back in. Now you're thinking, never heard this before. Where's this coming from? You guessed it, the Torah itself Te and the commentators. Text 5A, let me share my screen with you. Here we go. Text 4. Oh, we can't skip text 4. Okay, I'm going to read it quickly. This is what the Rebbe says about birth. Sorry, I meant to say this before. The Exodus is referred to in Ezekiel's prophecy as the birth of the Jewish people. The reason it's called birth because the Jewish people became a new entity, a mitziut chadasha, new entity. In other words, not that they didn't exist before, but a radically new definition of peoplehood. Yes, they were many people, hundreds of thousands of Jews before, but now they're a new entity of people spiritually. All right, so what does that mean? We're talking now about freedom, positive definition, and we talk about the define, one of the defining negative features of Egypt is they were steeped with idolatry so much so that Moses has to leave to pray. Donna Bogatin, please read text 5A right here. The hail struck. The hail struck throughout the entire land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck all the vegetation of the field, and it broke all the trees of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So Pharaoh sent and summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. God is the righteous one, and I and my people are the guilty ones. Entreat God and let it be enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall not continue to stand. And Moses said to him, when I leave the city, I will spread my hands to God. The thunder will cease and there'll be no more hail in order that you know that the land is God's. Now, why does Moses say in this last paragraph, when I leave the city, I will spread my hands to God and pray. Why, when I leave the city, why not pray right there and then? Well, Pharaoh saying to Moses, pray to God and stop the plague of hail. And Moses says, all right, give me a few minutes. I need to leave the city. What's going on? Rashi explains, Donna, please continue. One more. When I leave the city, but within the city, he did not pray because it was full of idols. Rashi says, Malaya Gilulim. Malaya Gilulim. It was filled with idols. Top and bottom, up and down, everywhere you looked. There were idols everywhere you look. There, now you're on the inside joke. You see that? Look at that. I brought you in on the inside. You see? Good. So here's the point. The city of, or the, the land, I mean, I guess not the whole land, but the cities were filled and steeped with idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? What is idolatry? For those of you that took one of the last courses, JLI courses that we did before the pandemic, it was called Judaism's Gifts to the World. You remember that one? Judaism's Gifts to the World. And one of the classes was on monotheism. And I asked the question, what's the big deal with monotheism? Sounds like Jerry Seinfeld. What's the big deal with monotheism? So what? It's like one God versus five gods. One God versus 10 gods. Why is monotheism better than, than polytheism? What's the difference? What? The lower number is better? It's like golf? Oh, I got a God in one. Yeah, oh, oh, oh. What did you get, a par five? Well, would you get a bogey, double, triple bogey? Ah, I got, a, I got a hole in God. I got one, I got one God. What is that? How is that a thing? Or a God in one? Whatever it is, right? How does that make sense? Or what does it even mean? So we explained then, I'm just going to just give you the the, the, the point, that it's not a numbers game. It's not about one God versus many gods. Here's the question, right? The question is, is there 
something in control that's guiding everything or is life simply the product of chaos abstract abject abstract chaos without a plan no vision warring gods that are fighting each other and 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 making people suffer along the way that's what the ancients believed in that's um, paganism or there is one god a loving god a kind god etc who's running this this world and so we have a place to pray we have a place to direct our attention etc if there's one direction here and it's a kind and loving god it's not a it's not a it's not a little difference it's a fundamental difference it's not about one versus many it's do i believe that there is purpose there is a plan there is a beginning a middle and an end there's a destiny do i believe in goodness that goodness will prevail or all bets are off that's the distinction the jewish people were living in a, in a land egypt that was steeped in idolatry not just houses of worship but the the psyche was one of polytheism paganism idolatry it was filled with that perspective of many gods that are fighting that are beating up each other and harming human beings that was their reality that was their mindset but not just was egypt a place where some idols were egypt was the epitome of idolatry it was the place as rashi says malaya gilulim filled with idols take a look at how the rabbi describes this text number six let's ask donna donna herbert please read text number six this is from a talk that the rabbi gave in 1961 passover 1961 this is the core of tonight's conversation. 1961 is how many years ago? 60, 60 years ago. 60 years ago, this Passover, this is the insight. Take it away, Donna. Idolatry can exist anywhere in the world. In some places, it not only can exist, but in fact, it does exist. Nevertheless, a given place is not usually full of idolatry. Things other than idolatry exist there as well. But the land of Egypt was full of idolatry, meaning anywhere there, anything there, whatever it may have been, was full of idolatry. In other words, just like in the realm of holiness, Laha of Dil, one must know God in all your ways, meaning one must connect everything one eats, drinks, etc., with godliness. In Egypt, it was just the opposite. In all their ways, everything was full of idolatry. What the Rebbe is saying is it wasn't just a presence of idols or an absence of idols. It was a mindset, and the mindset was completely different. Just like within Judaism, the, the goal of Judaism is that everything we see, do, encounter is all part of God's master plan, divine providence, etc. When it comes to the Egyptians, everything is part of idols, idolatry. It's the exact opposite. And now we hone in on our definition of freedom. We're getting close and birth. We're getting close to defining freedom and birth. We're getting so close. Stay with me. Now we understand what Egypt was. Egypt was not just a place where idols could be or where idols were, but it's a place, the Rebbe says, 
focusing on Rashi's Hebrew terms, it was filled with idolatry. Everything came back. Whatever you did, it came back to the perspective of idolatry. Yeah, you went shopping, somehow idolatry. Yeah, you, family life, work life, everything rotated around, circled around idolatry. And now we understand what was going on in Egypt for the Jew. You see, Egypt was a place that is the antithesis of where the Jew needs to be. The Jew needs to be steeped in oneness, not in idolatry. That wherever we go, we encounter the thread, the core of what purpose is, of what life is all about. God created this world with a purpose. So whether we're eating or whether we're drinking or whether we're doing business, whether we're at home, we're stuck in traffic, whether we're praying, everything is the same thing. It's one thing. It's bringing God into this world. To fix the world. Under the sovereignty of God. By the way, that's a quote from the Aleinu prayer, right? Yes, to fix the world, tikkun olam, under the sovereignty of God. By the way, tikkun olam has been co-opted to mean all sorts of things, repair the world in all sorts of ways. The original is to fix the world under the sovereignty of God Almighty. Oneness, to bring God into the world, to elevate the world to a state where it recognizes its creator. That's the purpose of everything. That's the one thing that is present, that can be present in anything and everything we do. You don't need to be in synagogue to find purpose. You don't need to be doing a mitzvah to find purpose. You can be eating lunch and do it in a way that acknowledges the source and the purpose. And it becomes holy. And a Jew living in Egypt is a fish out of water. A Jew living in Egypt is a Jew who is displaced, who's in the wrong environment. The wrong environment. This is an environment where it's not just a struggle to find God. This is an environment that is malaya gilulim. It's full of idols. It's filled with idol worship. It's the opposite perspective. Oneness. One thread running through everything. Are you kidding me? Oneness? What oneness? Oh, everything goes. Nothing goes. Everything goes. It's a free-for-all. It's a completely different environment. This is the deeper understanding of backbreaking labor. What does it mean that in Egypt, the Jews were subject to backbreaking labor? What was back? What they had to schlep the pyramid, the, the, the stones for the pyramid at the tippy top? Yeah, after it was mostly built, the last, right, the last few Hevra had to push up that triangle, that, that, that end piece, the top piece, all the way up, and they were sliding down, so they had it. I'm on a chair that rolls, thank God. So they had to go back up, and then they had it went back down, and then they kept on sliding. Is that backbreaking labor? No. Somebody unmute yourself. Tell me what our sages tell us. What was the backbreaking labor? What made it backbreaking? Building uh, brick cities and working in the field. Okay, but what else? Specifically, what was backbreaking about it? Was it physical or was it something else? Men had to do women's work. The, the, our sages tell us, and we're going to quote it in a moment, the Talmud says that what made it backbreaking, they gave the men work that was more suited for the women. And they gave women the, the work that was suited for men. This is not a discussion tonight on gender. This is a discussion about not 
being where you need to be, not being in the environment that you need to be in, that you need to be in. I'm going to quote some, some, some texts over here so you see what I'm talking about from the inside. I'm going to read these texts now. Text 7a. It says, this is the verse from Exodus. So the Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel with backbreaking labor. Let's, let's fast forward. Actually, no. Okay, one second. Let's keep on reading. And they embittered their lives with hard labor, with clay and with bricks, and with all kinds of labor in the fields. All their work that they worked with them with backbreaking labor. Again, backbreaking labor. The Talmud says all their work with backbreaking labor. Rabbi Shmuel Barnachmani said, Barnachmani said in the name of Rabbi Yonatan, this means they would exchange the responsibilities of men and women, giving men's work to women and women's work to men, requiring everyone to do work to which they were unaccustomed. Our sages tell us it wasn't so much the physical work because if somebody was doing work that was theoretically easier, so then what's the problem? It's not physical. It's not the physical sweating. It's not the physical muscle exertion. It's the psychological element. Are you with me on that? It's not a physical challenge. It was a psychological challenge. It's putting somebody in an uncomfortable place. And honestly, I don't need to tell you. I don't need to tell anybody here. We've all lived a few years. We all have walked around the block a few times in life. And we know that when we are in an uncomfortable place, we'd rather be schlepping bricks. We'd rather be schlepping bricks. Are you with me on that? Yes. When you are doing something that you don't know how to do, and everyone's looking at you maybe, right? But you're in a place that you don't feel comfortable. You would rather be schlepping bricks up the side of a pyramid, sliding back down and doing it again. You would much rather be doing that. It's the psychological torment. It's about not being where you need to be, where you know you should be. And the Rebbe says, you know what the deeper meaning of all of that is? Forget the men and the women and the this labor and the that labor. You know what it means? It's not being where you need to be. And it comes from a spiritual core. The Jews were in a place that was Malaya Gilulim, as Rashi says, a place that was filled and steeped with the idol, idols and idolatry. They were in a non-Jewish environment, not just any non-Jewish environment, right? But a, a non-Jewish environment that was the epitome of the antithesis of Judaism. I know I'm defining it by the negative now. How ironic. It was the epitome of that which is opposed to Yiddishkeit. Judaism is all about everything goes back to one. Find the core, find the thread, find the purpose, find the, the, the origin. Everything's back to one. And idolatry is not one, not one. Many, many, many and, and chaos and anarchy. And that is the theme of the day. A Jew in Egypt is a fish out of water, and it's back-breaking labor. It's soul-crushing. It's soul-crushing. Why? Because that's not where the Jew needs to be. That's not where the Jew can be. And so what's the antidote to Egypt? What's the antidote to Egypt? Simple. The antidote to Egypt, which is being in an in a foreign environment where you're not comfortable because there is no monotheism and there's idol worship instead, you know what the antithesis to that is? It's not just getting out of Egypt. That's not the antithesis. The solution is getting plugged into the source. The solution is getting plugged into the source of oneness 
and finding higher purpose, singular higher purpose. That's the answer. That's the solution to Egypt. So the problem with Egypt is idolatry. The solution is, well, monotheism, but the solution is embracing a way of living where everything comes back to one. Everything comes back to oneness and purpose. And this is what happened with the Exodus. But even more than what happened at the Exodus, this is what happened when the Jewish people received the Torah at Mount Sinai. It is then that they got the instruction manual for how to live as a Jew, to how to live a monotheistic life, to how to, how, for how to live a life that is starting from a singular point and ending at a singular epic destination. That is the manual. Being in Egypt is backbreaking labor. It's the wrong manual for the wrong tool. It's like, I don't know, fixing, trying to fix your refrigerator by looking at the manual of your toaster oven. You're looking at the wrong book. You're reading the wrong code. Does that make sense? Yes. So if you need to live a monotheistic, it's not just about, I don't, I don't want to get stuck in the labels. If you, but I'm, I'll use the labels anyway, because it's just easier to say. If you are meant to live a monotheistic life and you're in Egypt, doesn't go, doesn't work. What's the solution? Number one, get out of Egypt. Number two, embrace, receive, get the manual that is appropriate. Get the manual that works. This is why the Torah is the ultimate definition of freedom. I'm going to share with you a radical statement of our sages from Ethics of Our Fathers. It's a radical statement, and you may, may have heard it before, but it doesn't make it any less radical. This comes from Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, Chapter 6, Mishnah number 2. Rabbi Yoshua, the son of Levi, said, The verse states, and the tablets are the work of God. The writing is God's writing engraved in the tablets. Read not engraved charut, but liberty, cherut. For, listen to this, there is no free individual except for one who occupies themselves with Torah studies. With Torah study. Oh, Torah studies. Little slip of the tongue. Heyo, that's what we're doing right now. Right? So look, look at what Rabbi Shubhan Levi says. You cannot be free unless you study Torah. That's a bold statement. That's a hot take. That's a mic drop right there. You cannot be free unless you study Torah. And, 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 and the, you know, you and I might push back and say, well, I can't be free unless I study Torah. Since when, since what? You're telling me that Torah study is the, the magical answer for freedom. You, I study Torah. Next thing, I, next thing I'm doing is 613 commandments that dictate how I live and where I live and what I live and what I do and what I don't do. And that's free. And that's free. And the answer is that's called optimized living. That's optimized living. And optimized living that fits your essential nature is absolutely free. A refrigerator that is wired to act as a toaster is not free, right? A refrigerator that could be anything at once. I could be a toaster. Why are you such a large toaster? And it doesn't pop out. What is going on here? What is happening? Be a refrigerator. Don't be a toaster. Be a refrigerator. You're a refrigerator. 
This is what Torah is. Torah is our guidebook for how to live an authentic life, a true-to-self life. And that's the positive definition of freedom. Freedom is not simply the absence of a dictator, the absence of a despot, the absence of coercion. That's what it's not, but what is it? Freedom is the empowerment. I'm defining it now. So Merriam-Webster, pay attention. Freedom is the empowerment to be as you are meant to be, to live your life as your greatest life. That's what freedom is. Freedom is not the absence of, yes, that's a necessary condition, but what is the nature of freedom? What is the condition of freedom? It's the empowerment to live as you were meant to live, as you, were, as you are destined to live, your best and brightest and most noble self. And so how do we know how to do that? Where do we get the know-how and the inspiration? That's what Torah is. And I've, as I've said many times, I even said this as recently as Sunday, that's why you cannot have Passover without Shavuot. You cannot have Exodus and freedom without the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Because without a marching order, or without marching orders, without direction, right? How am I meant to optimize my life? Without that knowledge and empowerment, then we're not free. There are no external shackles, but there are plenty of internal shackles, right? We're, whence the freedom? What kind of freedom is that? Oh, Pharaoh's no longer breathing down my neck. Trust me, there'll be more Pharaohs. Self-inflicted, self-created Pharaohs. What is freedom? Freedom is I have the knowledge. I know who I am. I know what I need to do. I'm inspired to do it. That's freedom. Freedom is living your best life, living your optimized life. That's exactly what freedom is. And that's what Exodus is about. That's what the, the Matan Torah, the giving the Torah is about. And that's why of all the Jewish holidays, the one that doesn't have a calendar date is Shavuot. It's seven weeks after Passover. Why? Because it doesn't have its own identity. It's part two of the Exodus. Exodus is removing Pharaoh. And part that's part one. Part two is gaining true freedom. This is why... This, this, is, this answers the first question, what is freedom? And this also answers the second question, what is birth? What is birth? Birth is the moment in which you are empowered to live your life. It's when you get your life. It's when you get your identity. And that's what happened when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now, stage one is you break out of constriction, also with birth, right? But, stay, but part two is you gain selfhood. You gain identity, not just physical identity in the case of physical birth, but in the case of the Jewish people, they gain spiritual identity. That's why. That's why. It's called Leidat Am Yisrael, the birth of the Jewish people. And all the commentators wonder, well, the Jewish people were around. There were millions of Jews. What do you mean it's the birth? And the Rebbe says, birth doesn't mean that there weren't Jews and now suddenly there are Jews. What it means is that there was no identity. There was no real peoplehood. Who were they? What were they about? What was the mission statement? Yeah, give me the elevator pitch. What are the Jewish people about? No, ding, floor two, running out of time. 
ding, five floors here. Quickly get that elevator pitch. What is it? What is it? What is it to be a Jew? With the Exodus and the game of the Torah at Sinai, we got the definition of what it means to be a Jew. And with that, with that, we get identity and we get freedom. And that's why. That's why our sages tell us that the Exodus, this experience, is like birth. And it's also connected so beautifully with a birthday. Circling back to the theme of the 11th day of Nisan, the Rebbe's birthday, a birthday is the anniversary of birth. And on a birthday, the Rebbe encouraged us to celebrate, not in the traditional ways of cake and candles, although whatever, um, you know, no harm, no foul, but celebrating a birthday really means to recommit oneself to one's true identity, to one's true purpose. What am I here for? Not what could I do to have fun? That's a different question. But what am I here for? Being that I am monotheistic, being that I believe in a singular source with a singular destiny. So if God put me here on this world, what is my purpose? What am I here for? Which brings me to the conclusion of today's class and the story of Reb Zusha. You may know this story. You, can you might be able to tell this story. But some of you might not know it, and so I want to tell it, and it's a beautiful story, even if you heard it before. There was a great Hasidic master whose name was Reb Zusha of Anipoli. His name was Zusha. He was a rabbi, hence the Reb Zusha. And he was from the city, or he lived in the city of Anipoli. And on his deathbed, his students were encouraging him and reassuring him. They said, You're, you, were, you are as wise as Solomon, as loving as Aaron, as generous as Abraham, as wise as, as, as um, studious as Moses. They were trying to extol his praises to make him feel positive, to keep the mood positive. Upon which he said, when I cross over to the other side, they're not going to ask me, why weren't you, why didn't you match up to Solomon or Aaron or Moses or Abraham? But they're only going to ask me one question. Zusha, why weren't you like Zusha? Why weren't you like Zusha? My friends, as it goes for the whole, it goes for the individual. As it goes for the Jewish nation, it goes for you. And when I say you, I mean you individually. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, right? But you individually. Just like we as a people have a purpose, each one of us individually has a purpose, a purpose that has never been replicated before, nor will ever be replicated after. You have a singular purpose, a purpose that is unique to you that no one else before had and no one ever, no one else ever will. That's your purpose. That's your direction in life. Collectively, we have a path. Torah, mitzvot, oneness, bring oneness into the world. That's the collective goal. But individually, you have your path within that larger framework. You, we are all the Zusha. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we being the Zusha that we can be? Are we trying to be someone else or are we embracing our identity? 
To be a Jew in Egypt is to not be in the right place. That's what slavery is. That's what backbreaking labor is. When you take a Jew, you put him in Egypt, it's not the right fit. You take a Jew, give the Jew Torah, now that's free freedom, now that's birth, that's everything. But you and I, it applies the same as well. You take you and you try to live someone else's life, doesn't work. We spend so much time, we lose so much sleep, we develop so much anxiety when we look at other people and we wish we were living their lives. It's enough. It's enough. I'm, I'm not shutting down Instagram. I don't have the power. But we as a society are obsessed, not we present in this room right now, but we as a society are obsessed with voyeuristically looking into other people's lives. And it's got to stop because it's taking a toll on our well-being, physical and spiritual. We are meant to live our lives where we are, as we are, with the unique gifts and talents and abilities and circumstances and opportunities and challenges that we individually have. That is what that, the life that we're meant to live. And my friends, if you want to be free, it's simple. Live your life. You want to be enslaved? Try to live someone else's life or drive yourself crazy. Be free by living your life. Right, Ali Solish? Yeah, no, 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 no. Maybe yes. You have to ask somebody else. Okay, but I have to wrap up the class. One second, one second. You have to wait then. So here's the deal as we conclude. That's my sign saying, Dad, you're six minutes past. Okay, so let's wrap up. In conclusion, in summation, the definition of freedom is being true to who you are. The antithesis of freedom is slavery, backbreaking labor, which is being a Jew in Egypt doesn't work. The birth of the Jewish people is when we gain our identity, we gain our oxygen. Oh, the Torah, I can finally be true to myself. So what's the takeaway message? Number one, be a Jew. Be true to who you are. Embrace Torah. Do a mitzvah, right? Of course, we're all doing that, but I mean... Take it up a notch. We all can take it up a notch as we celebrate and we get ready for Pesach. That's number one. And number two, individually, let's stop looking at other people. Let's stop looking at other people and driving ourselves meshuggah. And you might think, well, I don't do that. We all, to some extent, we're all living, not all of it. We, we encounter moments of, of, of regret and quite, why this and why not that? And if I only did this, if I only did that, living in the past or living in the future. It's right about now, where you are, who you are. That is the most liberating experience to own this moment and forget about everything else is liberating. My friends, I wish you a very happy and healthy and kosher Passover. May all your Dr. Browns be as good as you remember it from yesteryear. If you like the salary, I won't tell anybody. May you, do they still make salary? Yes. Do we know that they, they still do? God bless Dr. Browns. May we all, may our matzah be crunchy. May it be fresh and not stale. May Costco not have kept it from last year because they couldn't sell it after Passover. All right, I can keep on going. But in, 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 without all, all jokes aside, this Passover, don't just experience freedom as not being under Pharaoh's thumb. 
but experience the real definition of freedom. Own your life. Embrace your identity. Revel in your destiny because there's only one of you. And God knows that we need you. Thank you very much for joining me for Torah studies. Thank you for joining me in this special pre-Pesach edition. I hope you're energized and ready to go. Chag Sameach. And it's great to see you all. All right, I'm here for questions, comments. Jump in. Feel free. Feel free to ask your question. So I have one question. Um, and... And, and it was a great lesson then. And so can you, um, I mean, it's a tough question, Rabbi, I apologize. So, but I don't know anyone else that couldn't tie this in, okay? So how, how can we tie in, and, I, and I'm trying to remember where it is. It might be Ezekiel, um, where it says, uh, and which means uh, 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 purify our heart uh, like snow and like, um, what is what's semer? Uh, it's like, um, semer. Uh, uh, yeah, well. Uh, um uh and then the the and then I believe it's in the same like paragraph uh and from all of your transgressions I will purify you. And does that correlate to our lesson tonight? I think so. I think so. In other words, it's that purifying <laughs> Salve, it's the ability to be pure and cleansed from that state of idolatry, from that state of running after a life that's not ours to live. It might seem attractive to run after all sorts of mishagasim, but at the end of the day, it doesn't feel good, doesn't feel right. And so on Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, high holidays, we stand before God and we say, you know what? Call Nidre, etc. Right? All of this promises, the oaths, the Every, all the things that we took on that weren't really us, forget about. Tonight is the authentic me. That's really what freedom is. Freedom is living authentically. So the exodus is all about an opportunity for authentic living. Torah is a major piece of that. And that's what the idea, I, I, think, I think, thank you for sharing that because I do think it is, um, it is connected. By the way, onto more important topics, where can we find garlic powder and uh, um, by the way, I went today yeah. to a kosher, to one of the kosher supermarkets, to one of the supermarkets that has a big kosher section. And I could not find, the place was wiped out. It I know, it's like crazy. There was an exodus of product, like, an exodus of product. Yes. All the product was exodus out. You've seen us at Lata. Seattle <laughs> food. If you are banking on, if you are, if you're accounting on going in the next two days to the supermarket to pick up something, call in advance and find out which one has it. Cause 
I, I heard the, the Kroger and Toco doesn't have, but the Publix does have. So just make sure that you're not driving yourself crazy. Make sure you know where you're going. I, I bought a, a, a Mara root, yeah. which is the biggest Mara root I've ever seen in my life. It's like this big. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and so it could have been one of the Corbin Pesachs. Um, yeah. In ancient days. Well, yeah, that's and why I bring it, a machete. It was 14 bucks in Dunwoody. Okay. Yeah. Well, but Hazen, I'm sharing. Don't be, so, Hazen, thank don't, God. Be, don't be so bitter about your bitter herbs here. <laughs> <laughs> I am not bitter about it. I'm kidding. No, I'm, I just had to say all. that. I know. I know you're good. I'm only bitter all about right. politics. Other than that. Ah, well, yeah. All right. We'll save that. So, All right. Yeah. Yes, Karen. You should you should try to find products in Maine. Ooh, yeah, I can imagine. Oh my gosh, I had to order like matzo meal off of Amazon. I mean, that's how. By yeah. the way, I heard that now it's, it's even Amazon. Amazon. Even Amazon is uh, is 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 not not having availability on the a no, lot. No, they don't. Because I think that I was looking. You know, I'm so glad I ordered it. I wasn't going to order it because it was twice the amount of money that it normally costs. And I thought this is ridiculous. But I found that there was like one store. You know, wherever um, the the Robinson here was saying she got lost you know, trying to get back onto the expressway. And I'm like, okay, I'm not even trying that. I'm ordering from Amazon, you know, and yeah, it's, it's definitely, Listen, definitely troublesome. I will tell you, there's a lot of stuff associated with the Passover, but at the core, at the core, oh, Passover.com. We got to check that out. Passover.com has a website for home delivery. That's cool. All right. Rabbi. Yes. Rabbi. Fred. In honor of the Rebbe's birthday. I would just like to say that he was all about words and accentuating the positive. Yes. When somebody yes. was on a, on a project and they said, oh, I've got a deadline. He said, no, forget deadline. It's a due date. So it's a difference, a choice of words that has a, a more positive meaning. Fred, I love you. Thank you for sharing that. The Rebbe was all about positive speech and positive thought and positive action, but speech was a major thing. Thank you for, for sharing that. And yeah, the Rebbe was always about speaking in a, uh, a refined way, in a positive way, uplifting way. And it comes from within. It comes from embracing the positivity, embracing who we are. And may we, it sounds like maybe a small thing, but it's not a small thing at all. It's a big thing. May we all take at least one resolution in honor of the Rebbe's birthday, in honor of Pesach, one resolution, one positive resolution to, to uplift us and to, uh, to bring more, more light into this world. What a beautiful, beautiful suggestion. And I'm trying to remember there were some other terms. Do you remember some of the other examples that were given? I think Rabbi Talushkin writes of, of this in his book. Um, there's due date versus deadline. And there's also, oh, oh, I'm, I'll tell you a story. I don't know if it's published in any of the books, but I, I heard this from the man himself. So as many of you know, I used to work in publishing. I still do some publishing, but I used to work as the managing editor for the Chabad publisher, publishing house up in Brooklyn, Kahat Publications Society. And one of the things that I soon learned from my boss, Rabbi Yosef Friedman, who is the head of Kaha Publication Society, who's the brother of Rabbi Manus Friedman, also the brother of the singer Avram Fried, et cetera. 
So one of the things that I learned from Rabbi Yossi Friedman is that not to write the word undertake. Even though we don't mean it that way. Yeah. It's like, so you're writing a story. It's so he heard this and he under, he, he said, I'll undertake this mitzvah or he undertook this mitzvah. The Rebbe said, the Rebbe would edit everything back in the day, English, Hebrew, Yiddish, everything. The Rebbe would strike out the word undertake and say, find a different expression. Find a different expression, not undertake, because it has negative connotations to it. Undertaker, etc. Um, but yeah, that's another example of, of, of language. The Rebbe would never say bad. He would say nishgut, not good, right? Always would say like, you know, the speak in a somewhat of a roundabout way, but not to speak of the negative. Um, it's a powerful way. And, and, and you might think it's a trivial thing, but it changes. It changes who you are from the inside. It changes when we're more careful about what we say. It, it changes who we are on the inside. We change what we do, we change what we say, it changes how we feel. Tikkun olam, olam doesn't mean to me to fix the world because God made a perfect world. It's to He left some things for us to improve upon. Right. And well, the, the Fred, the tall one says that Adam Shutafar Shalom Kadosh Baruchu Good. Yeah. We are the partners of God, of the Holy One that shall be blessed uh, in the ongoing works of Bereshit, of creation. So creation is always ongoing. It doesn't stop. Yeah. And we have the responsibility. It's all about responsibility. I think in the end, the, the answer, for me anyway, is about responsibility that we have a part. We always have a part. Yes, the Rabboni Shalom makes the final decision. But you know what? I think the Rabboni Shalom considers our participation in this. And that if yeah. you want an outcome, if you want the outcome that you want, whatever that is, the fact is, I think the Rabboni Shalom it's totally my opinion. Uh, I, I think Rabboni Shalom, because he created us, created us to partner with him. Yeah. And he the Rebbe said, the, I, 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 just let me jump in for one second. The Rebbe, please, on, yeah, please, on his please. 70th birthday, the Rebbe spoke about this. I was actually watching a video today on the Rebbe's birthday that was something that he spoke at his 70th birthday, which I mentioned also on Sunday Kabbalah and Coffee, but I'm, I'm gonna, I, I watched it again today and I want to reiterate it now. The Rebbe spoke about why we need to work for a living. And the Rebbe explained it's not because God wants to drive us crazy. It's because God wants a real partner. He said, imagine if, at quoting- Even what, after we retire? Oh my goodness, there's right. never had to. No, so one second. <laughs> yeah, 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 no. So the Rebbe was anti-retirement and this was where he said no retirement. You, could, you don't have to take keep your day job, but you got, we have to all still be active. But here's the point. The Rebbe quoted the Gemara that you quoted the piece of Talmud, that were meant to be shutfin, were meant to be partners in creation. And the Rebbe posed the following. He said, imagine if one party, one partner does everything and the other partner does nothing. Are they equal partners? They're not equal partners. So imagine if the Abishar of God did everything and we just got everything. 
that would not be an equal partnership. That would be a fake partnership <clears throat> where God is doing all the heavy lifting and we're doing nothing. So God says, I want you as partners. But if you're a partner, you're going to roll up your sleeves. I did creation. You're going to do some creation. I made man. You're going to make a mensch out of yourself. I'm going to start it. You're going to finish it. That's what God says, right? You're rolling up your sleeves. Dr. David, you got uh, get the gloves on and uh, ready to roll. On so Rosh Hashanah, things do slow down. If you're tuned in, you can feel it. You can feel it. Yes. And again, getting back to the important questions. Yes. Anything processed needs to have a kosher label on it. Adele, Adina Malka. So think about it this way. If it's, if it's pure and it's, it's, it's from the ground, no processing, then it's good to go. It's kosher. Um, but if it's, if it's, um, crushed and powdered, then it went through some sort of machine. And the question is, who, what, where, when, what else went through the machine? What else was crushed and, and powdered? And we and I don't have the answer to the question. And you don't have the answer to the question. And the FDA is not answering the question because you can sneak in ingredients that are under the threshold without even labeling it. They don't require certain things to be labeled. Even natural flavors could be crushed beetles for red. And that's not a joke. So so how do you know what it is? The only way to know is somebody on the inside, somebody that's on the factory, on the floor, checking the boxes, checking everything that comes in and goes out. That's where the kosher certification process is. They have rabbis on the ground coming in and out, checking, checking what's going on. And that's why you have a kosher symbol on it. Um, essentially, it should be kosher, but who knows? And, and not only who knows, like theoretically, but anything can run through that right before or right after. And so, and there could be traces of, of non-kosher. So that hence the need for certification. And for Passover, don't forget to find the little letter P that indicates kosher for Passover. Also, the O-R is the Orthodox Rabbi Heksher. I'm joking. O-R is registered. No, that's not a kosher symbol. The O-R. That was a joke. Hopefully everyone got the joke, right? The O-R is on everything. Okay. It. That's not kosher. Speak, yes. Speaking of there are more questions. Karen, go. Oh, no. I just wanted to find out. So, um, so I understand what, I mean, it, I understand that certain foods have to be kosher for Passover, but right. let's just say that there is at Trader Joe's a cherry preserves. I'm being very specific now because there is a cherry preserves that's kosher. Okay. If the cherry preserves is kosher, but it doesn't say kosher for Passover is something like that. That's like a fruit based kind of um, item acceptable. No, not for Passover. It's kosher, but it wouldn't be kosher for Passover unless specifically uh, mentioned. And if it's not mentioned, the indication is that there's probably something in the process, maybe an emulsifier, right? If it's a preserves, it's thickened with something. Maybe mm -hmm. there's some sort of preservative or emulsifier. Yeah, the corn syrup, David said. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not for Passover. It's not Passover friendly. Look, it's not, the kosher thing is not easy. Look, if you go, if, if you just want to eat fruits and vegetables, and peel stuff to be safe, you're fine. You're good. You're good to go. It grew from the ground. Here it is. Yeah, there might be a wax coating on it. So peel your vegetables and you're good. You're good. You're good to go. No problem. You want to get into processed stuff, all bets are off oh, unless yeah. you trust a certifying agency. <clears throat> That's where so the rabbi, comes in. Rabbi, yes. a, a, a really important question. When you say, since I'll have a new grandson. Mazel. I'm asking you, okay, 
I may know the answer, but I'm asking you. <laughs> so the so when it says right. you have a two-year-old and you've gone through this uh, way more recently than I have. And so when you say and you say to your child on that day, right? And if you want the most important question or the most important thought that you want to 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 elicit your I don't know if that's the right word, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, uh, you want to 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 say to your grandchild on that day because I'm going to have to do it. So I'm asking. Sorry, all of you for um, taking your time, but I'm sure it's an important question for everyone. What's the question? Um, what's the question? The question is, what's the question? What's the most important thing you can say to a two-year-old child and say about Pesach? I love you. Right? Hashem loves you. Here's a new toy. Have fun. Enjoy it. I would not get too heavy. Don't go over the kid's head. Oh, there's a great book, by the way, for Passover for two-year-olds. It's a touch and feel book. Um, it's called The Touch of Passover. It's written by an author whose name is Ari Solish. And you can find it on Amazon. This is legit. It's a toddler book. It's a board book. It's got sticky honey. It's got oh, crunchy matzah. This is legit. Yeah. So how do you tell a two-year-old about Pesach? We were, I don't, you, you just get them excited about it. You're not, look, you were through this. You went through this as a parent. So now you have another I chance. Did. I want, I want to get better at it. I don't, you know? I don't have, I, I, I don't know how I was good. I was so good at it. I, I'm listen, sure. main Bravo. thing is to give the kid a good time, to tell them that you love, love the child and, and Hashem loves them and all that stuff. All right. Final question. Yako, jump in and then I'm going to jump off because I have to run. Real fast. In honor of P. In honor of um, uh, the Rebbe's birthday, uh, yes. there is a new Polliger. Noah Polliger had a baby boy today, and boy, is I Noah And Luann just told me that uh, this is our anniversary, our third. Well, I knew this was our anniversary, but we just realized it's on the Rebbe's birthday. Wow, very special. Uh, and I know there's no time, but at some point, um, I know there's the four sayings of, I took you, I redeemed you. Yes. I, and I can never remember what those four things are. It's uh, somewhere in Exodus. It's the Seisi, the Itzalti, the Goalti. The Goalti. The Goalti. The Goalti. The Goalti. The Goalti. And go ten pages yeah. before, ten pages after. You'll find that you'll find a few mentions. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. not. I'm not, I, I've never been. I'm, I cannot give you chapter and verse like that. That's not my. Uh, that's not my specialty. But it's it's in there. All right, friends. I'm gonna run. Have a wonderful Pesach. We'll see you soon. Uh, I love you all. Stay healthy and stay blessed. Thank you. Thank you.